Turning Young African Eyes Toward the Cosmos, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Mike Simmons stopped by the other day. The founder and just-retired leader of Astronomers Without Borders brought along a very special guest. He'll introduce us to Olayinka Fagbemiro of the Nigerian Space Agency. Olayinka is also National Coordinator for Astronomers Without Borders Nigeria. Together they'll tell us that the night sky unites all of humanity. Four new missions have made it to the next step in the long road toward selection by NASA. Emily Lakdawalla will introduce them to us. And Bruce Betts brings back his favorite game, Where in the Solar System, with a tip of the habitat to Middle Earth. It's almost here. The new expanded version of the downlink will premiere on Friday, March 6th. You'll see it at planetary.org slash downlink, which is also where you can be one of the first to sign up for the newsletter. Here's a sampling of the space headlines Jason Davis collected for the most recent edition. The largest unnamed world in our solar neighborhood now has an official moniker. It's Gong Gong, named after a Chinese water god. Gong Gong may be a bit larger than Pluto's companion, Charon. The body's discoverers asked the Planetary Society to help with the public selection process. Gong Gong won by a two-to-one margin, and the name has been accepted by the International Astronomical Union. JPL engineers are making more aggressive attempts to get the InSight lander's probe, known as the Mole, to get a grip. The instrument is still stuck at the surface of Mars. Now the spacecraft's scoop will press on the Mole as it attempts to hammer itself deeper. Meanwhile, scientists have published results of the first 10 months of data from InSight's seismometer. It found 174 Marsquakes. More than 20 of these had magnitudes of greater than 3, which I can tell you, growing up in L.A., is enough to shake you up. More to come, no doubt. The Juno mission has achieved one of its major goals by determining that water makes up about one-quarter of one percent of Jupiter's atmosphere. That's three times as much as Galileo's atmospheric probe found when it plunged into the giant world back in 1995. Scientists have long suspected that the probe was simply unlucky enough to enter an unusually dry spot. And NASA has acknowledged that the first liftoff of the Space Launch System, that giant rocket at the core of the agency's Artemis program, will be delayed to sometime in 2021. NASA still says it can return humans to the moon's surface by 2024. Emily Lakdawalla is the Planetary Society's Solar System Specialist. Emily, great to get you back on to uh, talk about these four brand new Discovery Program candidates. Could this be the year that Venus finally gets a little more love? It could be. I mean, Venus has been visited by a couple of missions, but not by NASA for an awfully long time. In fact, it's so long ago, it was before I was even a graduate student. I was working on Magellan data for my grad program. And that's the last time NASA got any up-close-and-personal data. So I'm so excited to see two Venus missions in this Discovery Down Selection. And I think the community is really, really hoping that that one of them will get picked. I remind us, first of all, where are these Discovery missions in, in the entire spectrum of NASA's uh, planetary science missions? 
Well, Discovery is the lowest cost program of NASA missions. There's three basic classes of NASA missions. There's Discovery, New Frontiers, and Flagship. Discovery missions cost around $500 million. New Frontiers are about a billion. And then Flagship are like $2 billion and up. They're supposed to fly the most often. They're supposed to push the envelope in one way or another, either with the type of instrument that they're using, a type of measurement they're trying to perform, the way they operate, the kind of uh, propulsion they use, you know, one of those things. It's designed to be rapidly developed missions that help NASA prove new technologies that they could later go on to use on some of their bigger missions. Insight on Mars is one of these, right? Insight is one of those. It's not the best example, actually, because uh, of the way that that year's selection worked. But there have been some really spectacular missions that that tested really new stuff, like Dawn going to Ceres and Vesta. We had Messenger at Mercury, which is a fabulous mission. There's a huge number. Uh, the Discovery Program has really been quite successful over time. The hope is that they'll actually be able to pick two out of the four. They'll pick at least one, but people really are pulling for two. And they did pick two in the last round, right? Those two uh, asteroid missions? That's right. There's Lucy and Psyche. Lucy is a mission that's going to explore a bunch of um, centaurs and uh, trojans. These are rather distant small bodies. They tend to be, they orbit around uh, Jupiter's distance from the sun. And so it'd be the first kind of mission to go to multiple objects like that. And then Psyche is a really fun one. It goes to an all metal asteroid. So those will be very cool. And I think because both of those are asteroid missions, people were not surprised that the four missions down selected in this round, not one of them is proposed for an asteroid. I can't wait for uh, Psyche in particular, because it's going to be so interesting to finally see one of those metal uh, monsters up close. But take us through these uh, four uh, candidates that are that are still competing in this round. Well, we'll talk about the Venus missions first, since uh, since you mentioned those already. There's two. One's called Da Vinci Plus, and the other one's called Veritas. Both of them were actually in the final round, the last discovery selection that wound up with two asteroid missions, which is one of the reasons I think that people are really fairly sure that at least one of these will go forward. They're quite different missions. Da Vinci is, is one that will penetrate the atmosphere. It's studying the, the qualities of the atmosphere on the way down. It's basically an atmospheric probe. It will take cameras uh, as it's descending, but it's not designed to last a long time. The Veritas mission is a, a radar mission, which is in a way like Magellan, but it's specifically focused on topography, which I can tell you as a person who studied Venus once, it is so necessary. The modern kind of renaissance of Mars exploration began with Mars Global Surveyor, which got the first really good topographic map of Mars that formed the basis of all the rest of the Mars orbital work that's been done for the following 25 years. This mission stands a chance to do the same thing, to develop the topographic map that will be the basis of everything thing we do on Venus for decades. So as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit biased. I love my <laughs> Venus radar. I think topography is so necessary. And I've known Sue Smecker, who's the uh, principal investigator for a long time, ever since I was a grad student. And I, I would dearly love to see her be in charge of a mission like this. She's lovely. Now, what about the other two? They're going much further out. Yeah. So the other two missions are pretty exciting. They're outer planets missions. And uh, one of them has been proposed before, and that's Io Volcano Observer, which is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a spacecraft that's <laughs> designed to orbit Jupiter and um, observe the volcanoes on Io. It's designed to try to figure out how uh, all the massive tidal forces that are operating in, in orbit around Jupiter, between Jupiter tugging on Io and, and Europa and Ganymede also, how that generates the heat that's coming out of Io's interior, just how much heat is coming out of it, 
and try to understand better what the volcanism is doing on Jupiter's innermost and very volcanic moon. Can we assume that it would also have a, a camera on board so that we could get really up close to those uh, magnificent volcanoes? It absolutely would. There's no question. As I've, as I've said before with Juno, it would be a crime to go to Jupiter and not have a camera on board. This one, I'm sure, would have a, a nice uh, infrared camera, near infrared, because Io's volcanoes are so hot that you can map them uh, by their heat alone. And so you would be studying it both in like regular visual images and also in infrared wavelengths where they'd be illuminated by their own heat. So you'd be able to image them both in day and at night to see the heat that's coming out of the volcanoes. I would only add that it seems like a crime to go anywhere without a camera. <laughs> uh, all right. How about this last one, the fourth and, and the one that uh, will be going the furthest if it's funded? That's right. So Trident uh, is a flyby of Triton, which is the largest moon of Neptune, the only actually big moon of Neptune and likely a captured Kuiper belt object. It's even larger than Pluto and is otherwise very Pluto-like in its composition and characteristics. It also orbits Neptune backwards, so it's probably a captured object. It probably didn't start out its existence there. We know that it has active geysers. Uh, it's just an opportunity to go by, map it, look for changes that have happened since Voyager 2 flew past, um, try to understand the particles and the environment around it. And, you know, Voyager 2, uh, as cool as the flyby of the Neptune system was, it was a spacecraft that was really not designed to operate and get great pictures and things so far from the sun. So this would be the first really good flyby of Triton. Plus, they'd also obviously get some good close-up views of Neptune. They'd fly past some small bodies along the way, probably, and do some great science the way that New Horizons is doing science and small bodies in the outer solar system. And it has the distinction of being the only one in the list that doesn't have an acronym for its name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they get points for that or not. How soon might we be hearing the decision from NASA as to which of these, hopefully two of them at least, uh, will be headed for space? Well, first, the four teams are being given some time to do some further work to try to nail down the costs and the challenges involved in the mission. They can spend a little money um, trying to develop some of the necessary technologies forward a little bit. And then they uh, will give big reports to uh, NASA about their progress. NASA will visit them and see how well prepared they are to actually operate a mission. And then they'll make a down selection in 2021. I don't know exactly mm. when it will be yet, and we don't know how many it will be yet. It will be at least one, could be two, and uh, <laughs> who knows? I guess as long as we're being optimistic, we can hope for three. Probably not going <laughs> to happen, but uh, it would be nice. Uh, well, we'll hope for quality and quantity in Indeed. this round of the, the, the Discovery Program. Oh, one more question. How soon after they are chosen might we actually see some of these head toward their destinations? Well, it doesn't take all that, it shouldn't take all that long to develop a discovery mission. Usually it's it's just uh, somewhere around four or five years to launch. And then, of course, how long it takes to get data depends upon how long a cruise they have. It's very quick to get to Venus. So we could be, as you know, maybe five months after launch, you'll be at Venus and already set up and starting to acquire preliminary data. But getting to other places like orbiting Jupiter and flying past uh, Neptune take a long time. When you do planetary science, especially if you're an outer planetary scientist, you need to be really patient and be willing to accept the fact that you might be starting a project and launching it and then handing it over to a former graduate student to operate once it's in flight. Emily, I'm glad to still be playing the long game with you here in planetary science. Uh, lots uh, to look forward to, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Matt. 
That's our solar system specialist, Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. Mike Simmons discovered our universal fascination with the sky when he started sharing astronomical wonders decades ago. It led him to found Astronomers Without Borders, or AWB, where their motto is One People, One Sky. There is hardly a portion of our planet that Mike has not visited, encouraging scientific wonder and curiosity wherever he goes. Olayinka Fagbamiro is a kindred spirit. She is Assistant Chief Scientific Officer for Planning, Policy, and Research at the National Space Research and Development Agency in Nigeria. She also leads the agency's Space Education Outreach Unit, so it's easy to see why Olayinka would also embrace the AWB mission. She has had remarkable success as AWB's National Coordinator in Nigeria. In addition, she serves as the Public Relations and Education Officer for the African Astronomical Society. Mike called the other day to ask if he could bring Olayinka to the Planetary Society's Pasadena headquarters as she continued an astronomy-focused tour of California and the United States. We were thrilled to oblige, especially because I couldn't wait to share Mike and Olayinka's stories with you. Mike Simmons, always a pleasure to talk to you on Planetary Radio, and it is great to see you here. You've never been to uh, this headquarters for the Planetary Society before. No, this is the first time in this particular building. I was at the original one, which is a great old Pasadena house. I miss it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And the other one, uh, short term, this is the first time I've stopped by here. Well, I'm glad you made it, and I'm especially glad because you brought the special guest who is sitting next to you right now. Would you please introduce her? Well, this is Olayinka Fagbamiro from Nigeria, and Olayinka uh, works with the space agency there. But of more interest to me is that she created and runs uh, Astronomers Without Borders Nigeria, does fantastic things in the country to introduce astronomy and science to some very special people. So uh, it, it's wonderful to have her here visiting us for the first time. I suspect that most of our audience will know that you were Astronomers <laughs> Without Borders. For many years, you founded the organization. Yes. And you've moved on. You're doing other exciting things now. Obviously, that had to do with why you crossed paths. But how did you end up meeting each other and, and get to know each other? Ole Inka reminded me just the other day that actually we met at a conference. And I meet a lot of people. I hear from people in other countries all the time. And I always write back because you never know. She was somebody who went back inspired by the idea and created something really incredible. And it's great to be able to do that as a part of Astronomers Without Borders, but really people are doing outreach and education in astronomy in STEM fields all around the world. And to be able to give somebody uh, uh, some inspiration to do it as a part of the network of people around the world is, is fantastic. Olayinka, welcome to the Planetary Society. I I look like you enjoyed the tour. Yes, thank you so much. Um, It's a pleasure being here, and I'm particularly um, excited to be at this space. I love the tour that you have an amazing space, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We like it very much, and I'm I'm glad that you've had a good time as we showed you around. You got a a nice uh, introduction to LightSail from Bruce Betts, our chief scientist. Yeah, it's really great because that's um, the first time hearing about this particular project, and I think it's amazing. I'll definitely go back home and share with my network and, and see what more we can learn and inspire little kids about about that. I think 
think it will be a great um, topic to discuss. Absolutely. Well, we hope so anyway. I, I certainly agree with you. It was only two or three days ago that Mike let me know that you were in town, and he wondered if you'd be able to stop by. And, of course, we love visitors. I was intrigued immediately because he talked about your role with Astronomers Without Borders in Nigeria. But he also said that you have a day job. You work with, is it the... The Nigerian Space Agency? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Tell uh, me about that. When I left university in the year 2004, I started a job with the Nigerian Space Agency in the year 2007 as an outreach and education officer for, for space education. I've been there ever since. And along the line, I, I got involved in some other projects and um, astronomers without borders, like um, universe awareness. And it's been awesome, like having a day job and then having the time to do this other very important work. I think it's, it's a great thing for me because I get the, the chance to inspire little ones. We're trying to raise the next generation of space scientists and, and, and STEM guys in, in Africa. I also am the public and um, education officer for African Astronomical Society. What I do in Nigeria, I, I do by extension across Africa. African Astronomical Society is um, an organization with a, a very big um, reach to African countries. I think about 40 plus African mm. countries are, are, are part of EFAS. One of the major things we're trying to do is first to create awareness about astronomy across Africa. Astronomy is not really so much developed in Africa as it is in, in the in the US and or Europe. So one of the major work we're trying to do is to create the awareness, get many young people involved in astronomy. We're trying to see a way of getting more people in the career part of astronomy and also to use astronomy as a means of teaching STEM science, technology, engineering, mathematics mm -hmm. across Africa. These are some of the many things that we do as, as efforts. My guess is that your day job with the Nigerian Space Agency probably keeps you pretty busy. Are, are they happy to have you involved with all these other activities like AWB? Yes, they, they, they are. And, and I think I, I've got the very good support in, in the Nigerian Space Agency because Nigeria is a pretty big country with a population of almost 200 million people and young people almost 30 to 40 percent of this population. So the space agency is happy to have as many extra hands as possible in reaching out to, to this large population of young people. And because my role in the Nigerian Space Agency is pretty much like an extension of what I do with AWB, Space Education Outreach. Mm -hmm. I personally head the Space Education Outreach of the agency. And also we have this new space museum. We have a lot of young kids coming around almost on daily basis, which I, I coordinate as well. So it's it's almost like 
there are no demarcations between what I do as, as Nigeria Space Agency and what I do as AWB. That's great. Is that Space Museum, is that the one you showed us the video of a little bit that was in a refugee camp, or is that separate? No, that, that was um, a project of AWB. It, it was a project about having a national me hub for kids in the internally displaced people's camp. Uh, so in Nigeria, because of the problem of the insurgency that we, we've got going on uh, around the northern part of Nigeria. Boko Haram. Boko Haram, yes. So we have a lot of displaced people from across the region uh, affected by, by the insurgency. So we have, of course, people with young children in these camps. A few years back, we thought these kids should also have a feel of what space and astronomy and all those funds could be. So we, 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 we started that project of establishing a astronomy hub for, for these IDP guys. And um, with the support of Office of Astronomy for Development in Cape Town, we were able to have mm. the first one, which was a project that was targeted at these young kids who are mostly out of school. And then we also had to bring in some counselors because we, we needed them to, because many of these guys are traumatized. Many of them of were course. displaced yeah. from their homes. Many of them have one or both parents killed due to the insurgency. And so they are basically not in the right frame of mind to, to even learn. So we had to bring in some, some counselors and, and we went ahead and made this um, solar-powered astronomy hub, which has um, smart TVs and uh, internet connectivity with um, a lot of materials and, and videos. And, um, it was a beautiful little facility yeah, from it what is. I could see in the video. Yeah, it is. it is. It is small, but it's also very effective because we have some people managing the project. And what we do is because we have a lot of kids in this camp, we, we have almost 300 um, young young people, so we, we've been able to look for a way to make all of them at least once in a week have access to this op. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have like a timetable of, okay, so you go in maybe every Wednesday or every Monday and, and use the computer, use the smart TV, you know. Just have fun. We have a lot of posters on astronomy, and it's, it's been cool. I'll be back in moments with Ole Yinka Fagbemiro of Astronomers Without Borders Nigeria and AWB founder Mike Simmons. Hi, I'm Yale astronomer Deborah Fisher. I've spent the last 20 years of my professional life searching for other worlds. Now I've taken on the 100 Earths project. We want to discover 100 Earth-sized exoplanets circling nearby stars. It won't be easy. With your help, the Planetary Society will fund a key component of an exquisitely precise spectrometer. You can learn more and join the search at planetary.org slash 100 Earths. Thanks. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. How many children are among the displaced in, in Nigeria? Do you, do you know roughly? Maybe not the displaced, but, but the latest um, UNICEF statistics says there are 13.2 million out-of-school kids in wow. Nigeria. Out of school? Yes. Okay. So that means these are children within the age of being in, in either elementary or high school who are not 
So basically, they are on the streets. They are just not in school. Not 13, good. Yeah, 13.2 million of them. Mike, you have been all over the world. Many of the places you go, troubled areas. Many of them, I suspect, with other displaced people, as we've heard described in Nigeria. Have you seen some commonality among particularly young people, kids, when you come in and, and show up with telescopes and start talking about the sky that's over all of us? Well, I don't necessarily take telescopes with me, except on the occasions when I can bring something to the people there that somebody has paid for and there's a way to trans transport it. But I've seen children all around the world. They are so much alike, no matter where they are. I've gotten some good pictures of different races in the same place, uh, you know, like in northeastern Iran. Uh, the children really, I think, are always looking for the same things, just as us grown-ups are, but they haven't been affected yet by the things that happen in the environment. They're still looking for that wonder. They're still looking to discover things. They're, they're really, children are born scientists. Yes, Yes. And, and that's a common thread throughout. Olenke, I see you, you're nodding very emphatically as Mike has been describing this. Is this what you see for these children who have had very difficult lives? Yeah. It's really amazing because I remember the first time we went to the Heidi B camp, and then we, we, we met with this. Um, the first time we went, actually, was when Mike um, sent her some solar glasses for 2013. There was this partial eclipse mm -hmm. we experienced in Nigeria. And while we were busy distributing the, the, the glasses to different schools and different communities, I figured there are these guys in this camp. They also should have a few. So we, we took some there. And it was amazing because, you know, they, 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 they were so excited. They, they, they looked through the, the, the solar glasses, looked at the eclipse, and, you know, it was amazing. So when there was this chance to, to have this um, learning hub, uh, astronomy hub built for this camp, and then we went back, a few of the kids came and they could recognize themselves from three, four years back. And they're still in the camp, you know. It, uh. it was depressing for me because, like, I, I thought the camp was supposed to be like a stopgap, you know, like you're displaced and then you, you're there for a, a, a limited period of time until you get, um, you know, re... Well, this is this is yeah, true the, in so many system. refugee camps. Yeah. They become well, permanent settlements. Yeah, they became yeah. So when we went there with, with, with our telescopes, it was amazing, like... Looking through their eyes, even despite the the situations they have, you know, it, it, it was really a moment for them to forget about the, the predicaments they are in as, as refugees in their home countries. They were very excited. And, of course, they always seen the telescopes for the first time. So the excitement was so much, and, and it was really a good feeling for us as a team because, you know, you have kids who usually sad because many of them are missing their parents who have either been killed or separated from them, you know, and then coming together, looking through the telescopes and then sharing the excitement with us, it, it, it was really wonderful. I think 
like Mike said, kids all over the world, I think they are just the same, yep. irrespective of the level of comfort or, or background that they have. It, it's just amazing. Who works with you on this? Do you have a lot of volunteers who have some science training, or are, they, are, are there people also who are also new to, to astronomy? I have um, a team of young and enthusiastic scientists and engineers, some of who work with the Nigerian Space Agency, some who, who work with other organizations, some are um, teachers, some are lecturers in, in the universities. So these guys, have, we, we share the same passion about um, popularizing astronomy in, in Nigeria. So they are, they, these guys are selfless. They, they give their best 110% to, to see that this work. And also I have this other um, network of volunteers, and they come around to say, you know what, anytime you have a project, we will want to be a part. So f- with these people, um, when we have any program, like when we have this IDP camp project, we just inform them to say, you know, guys, we have this project, and they showed up. Of course, many of them don't have um, background in astronomy or science or engineering, but um, we have a way of carrying them along because, you know, we have a train-the-trainer kind of arrangement where, okay, we're going to be doing this tomorrow or in a few hours, so if you guys come together, let's tell you what is expected, how you could be of help to the kids. We do the same and, thing with our volunteers oh, for the Planetary Society. Yeah, yeah, some so, of them are amateur astronomers. Many yeah, of them aren't. They yeah. just are excited to be able to share this. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's how it works. Like I have these core people who are always there you know, for every project. They write proposals, hmm. get us some of these grants that we use for this project. And then we have these other volunteers who only come in on voluntary basis when we have any projects. Are very many of your volunteers women? Yes. Young women, girls. Yes, I, in fact, we, some of the projects we've had to hand, in fact, it's an ongoing project at AWB Nigeria, is a girls' camp. There are more female children out of school than, than the, the boys. Yeah, because of certain reasons, um, religious, socio-political, cultural, and, and a lot. Well, sometimes you said just out of fear as well, because yeah. the parents might be afraid to let their daughter go to school where they might be vulnerable to yes. kidnapping. Yes, that's why we have more of these girls in, in the IDP camps, especially the ones that have been displaced from the northeastern part of Nigeria. The, the parents are... They don't want them to go to school so that they don't get kidnapped by by, by the insurgents and, and all of that. So you see them um, just roaming the streets or being involved in, in child labor and, and all mm. of those kind of things. So I have a, a number of women on this voluntary uh, on this my uh, on this team, and what we try to do is we want them to be inspired. For example, when I'm speaking to a group of young girls, I tell them, you look at these guys. I let them introduce themselves. This is an this person's an engineer, this person's a lawyer, this person is a scientist, you know. So you also can be like one of us. Great role models. Yeah. We want to be role models to, to them. And I think it's working because it's not unusual after any of our programs you have kids coming to you to say, you know what? 
I didn't want to go to school before. I thought I you know like I don't want to. But now seeing you guys, I think <laughs> I'm I'm going to like I think I changed my mind. I, I I want to be like you when I grow up and it's always very g- great to to hear such from from them. Mike, you have seen young people coming to programs like this for many, many years. They're not all in situations where even maybe some of the most motivated among them might have a chance to go into a STEM career, but I'm sure some of them do. I mean, what do you see? Is you Do you see some of these people first as kids and then see them again later and, and see how it's affected their lives? I don't know that I see the same ones decades apart. I can't follow them like that, but there's so many instances of things where 40 years ago I was running the telescope at Griffith Observatory and someone came in and said, you know, looking through this telescope is what got me into a science career. He didn't go into astronomy. It didn't matter. It's what got him interested. Um, There are others I've seen that with a little encouragement, all they they need to continue and, and chase their dreams I do have contact with people all over the world all the time, and I know that most will not be able to become an astronomer or something else. And, you know, most people that go into astronomy to begin with end up in some other field anyway. I'm one of them. Yeah, well, me too. I mean, in, in a way, it's not— <laughs> You're much closer to the real thing than Closer I am, to the but, real thing, yeah. but, you know, not what I did for a career. So, so things change, but— the important thing is that astronomy is something that is universal. It's in every culture, all through history, everyone's interested. So it really is the gateway. It's the gateway drug to STEM careers. <laughs> uh-huh. And when you get interested, if you want to go into biology or chemistry or physics or anything else, including cultural things, social things, astronomy is connected to every one of them. It is a way of presenting something like what, what Ole Inca does in Nigeria. They can't go around with a chem lab or a physics lab. Not everybody would be interested necessarily, but looking through the telescope. And when we talk about kids, I'll tell you there's no age limit on that. Mm-hmm. Most people never look through a telescope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 80-year-old people look through a telescope for the first time, and the reaction is the same. It's one of the things we've talked about before, and I see this all the time when I bring my telescope out. It's almost shocking to me still, but there are so many people who have never enjoyed the sky, had those photons come right through a lens from Saturn or the moon, since those are the two that everybody gets a chance to look at first and finds the, the most exciting, frequently anyway, Jupiter with its own Galilean moons. Yeah, same Absolutely. experience. You get to see this all the time, too. Yeah, it, it's really, um, it's even, I think, worse in Nigeria because we, we don't have as much people doing astronomy outreach as you probably have in the U.S. So an, an average child in Nigeria has never seen a telescope. Mm. And so when we go for public outreaches, because, okay, so we have a number of outreaches we do, um, we have outreaches we do with schools where we carry our telescopes, and then uh, we, myself and my team, we, we go to schools and 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 talk to kids and um, let them look at the telescopes. Um, sometimes we go to public places, maybe like a shopping mall, car park, in front know. of a pizza parlor. Yeah, we had one, <laughs> and then you you set up the telescope and you see hard dots. 
seeing the telescope for the first time in their lives and the reaction it is always priceless like wow you know so 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 we have that a lot in nigeria we have this peculiar challenge of astronomy not being in the curriculum of, of elementary or high school in nigeria so you don't have a course or a subject mm-hmm. astronomy being taught in school so that is is always a challenge because so how are we supposed to know about astronomy if we don't get to be taught in school? And so this is how we come in. We let them know, okay, you know what? You can still enjoy the wonders of astronomy. And also at AWB Nigeria, we have the uh, the teachers training program that we do for science teachers. Oh, that's and great. yes, so one of the things we focus on is to let them know that, okay, even though you guys are, uh, you teach physics or chemistry or mathematics, or whatever science subject you, you, you teach. We try to bring out astronomy from each of well, these classes. It's like classes. Mike said. My, astronomy is in all it's of in those. Home, it, yeah, it's across it, STEM. In geography, in physics. So we, we, we let them know that you can use whatever subject it is you're teaching. You can find a way of bringing out the astronomy. Yeah. You did something else which caught my eye immediately when I looked at the Nigerian AWB website, yeah. uh, which we will put a link up to the website oh, great. on the episode page that people can find at planetary.org slash radio uh, when they hear this show. You did Yuri's Night, which I was very happy to see because I'm one of the founders of Yuri's Night, something oh, wow. I'm very proud of. Wow, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Okay, so yes, we, we had Yuri's Night and it was really, really exciting. Actually, we had more than one event to to celebrate Yuri's night. We had the daytime event, and then later in the evening, we, we came out with our telescopes, and we had people coming around to look through the telescope. And, of course, um, we, we told them about Yuri's, because I, I think most people know about Yuri Gagarin, you know, as being... I the, hope the, so. I'm yeah, not sure, but I hope not, so. Well, maybe not many people. I, I think... For example, in Nigeria, we, 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 I remember when I was a kid, we, we heard about the first man in space. And yes. It was something that we, we, they told us at that time. And, of course, because there was no one to follow up on, on, on those things. So many people ended up not even remembering who he was and, and what he did. So that Jewish night um, provided the opportunity to let people know once again, who Yuri, Yuri Gagarin was and, you know, the significance of, 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 of human space exploration and all of that. And, um, of course, it was an opportunity to look to the telescopes again. And it's always exciting when you bring out your telescope because there are always people who are seeing the telescopes for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's universal. I hope that the people who attended your Yuri's Night celebrations knew that that was happening all over the world on yes, that day. Yes, we, we let them know that this is a, a global event yeah. and that every 12th of, of April, you know, you, you, we, we, we celebrate this all over the world. And, and so um, we, we're planning the, the one for 2020 already. Excellent. Because, yeah, people are looking forward to it. Like, so when are we going to have Yuri's Night again? Say, okay, just wait. Just okay. comes once a year. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you about one other project, and I don't know how much you had to do with this, but I saw it on the AWB site for Nigeria, and that was a chance that some students had to send some seeds 
into the stratosphere, not into space, not yet anyway, but at least up above most of the atmosphere. Did you did you work on that? Yeah, yes. Um, so we we had the opportunity of working with Asgard Project, Asgard Project in, in Brussels and Belgium. They, they've done it for a couple of years before I, I got um, involved. And then he says, this would be a great opportunity to bring, uh, because they, they've never had any African team in the project. And I said, yeah, that sounds really cool. Like we have, um, I have a lot of people that work with me who would be able to come up with projects that students could, could do and, and fly to the edge of space. And so we started. But of course, we needed the funds to bring the kids to, to Brussels. Fortunately for us, we, we got the support of the Nigerian Army. Mm. They have a, a, um, a school. The Nigerian Army runs a, a school. And so we, we got the funds to take students from that school for the project. And it was really a life-changing event for them because the project basically was we, we had some samples of Nigerian um, seed crops. Quite a variety. Yeah. A variety. And, and then we, we, we launched on the stratospheric balloon to the edge of space and we brought them back. And the idea was to complete the, the experiment. We had to plant the ones from space, from the edge of space and the one that didn't go, you know, we wanted the kids to see the different, like, okay, so how, how, how differently would this work? And then, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for, for, for us. And during the, the project, we were also able, the kids met with um, Dick Fermot, he is a, he's a famous um, Belgian astronaut. Hmm. You know, it was the first time they were seen an astronaut. So that was also a high point of, of the program. And, and I think we're also looking forward to this year's um, Asgard. I hope that at some point they can send these young people the seeds into space. I mean, maybe they'll be able to get them on a suborbital flight or even better yet up that to the International be. Space Station where there are a lot of major companies that are doing we, the same we, we thing. We look forward to that. We really yeah. look forward to that. Before we end, I want to hear about your trip here because Mike told me you're not on official business. You paid your way to come over. What yeah. brought you to America? Why are you here? Actually, I wanted, we wanted to do this for a long time because of what I do in Nigeria with Astronomers Without Borders. And so when I, I thought coming here would, would afford me the opportunity of be meeting people like you have. <laughs> Mike has taken me to so many places. Like I've, I've been really greatly inspired, you know, going to Mount Wilson um, Observatory, the Grifty, you know, we went also to the California Science Center and all of that. Stood so, underneath the space shuttle, I'm yeah, told. Yeah, Endeavor. yeah. Yeah, so, so when we, we, we tried to look for fund, you know, we, we couldn't really, get, because that's one of the major challenges we face working in Africa and Nigeria. Yeah. Mostly you don't have to get funds and, and grants to to do major projects or travel. So I said, okay, fine, you know what? We I, I can plan towards this for, for a year. I could put in some personal savings and um, with the help of a, a few friends and, you know, I was able to make my way here. 
That's yeah. great. Right above us here, if you go out to the parking lot, you'll see Mount Wilson. And yeah. you were up there enjoying the view, I know, yeah. which has two, count them, two of what were at the time the largest the telescopes largest telescope. in the world. Yes, I, 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 was, I, I, I was taking on a tour of the 60-inch and the 100-inch telescope. It, it was like the best thing I've seen in recent time. You know, it's really very, very inspiring for me. I think that is the more reason I I knew I had to be here because (laughs) going back home, you know, I'm going back with a lot of um, knowledge, a lot lot of experience, a lot of things that would really improve on on what I do back home. Mm. Of course, I look forward to having an opportunity to, to to let some of my team members also come around to 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 visit and, and see these places, and then um, when I talk to kids, sometimes you know I show them pictures of things I had not seen myself. You know, I just told them, okay, this is how this. Is. But now you know, with all these things, it's I've, different. Yeah, when you've it's been different. There. Yes. So now I, I'm telling them like a first-hand experience of of what transpired. I think it will really go a long way too. When do you head home? Tomorrow I'll be off to Seattle to attend the AAAS um, meeting, the hmm. American um, Association of Ad- for the Advancement of Science meeting. And um, after that, I, I head back to Abuja. I am so glad that you were able to make it here as part of this trip across the United States, North America. And it really has been an honor to have you here as uh, in our studio, and to tell us about this experience. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me here. You're and very thanks welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Mike, same to you. Always a pleasure. You must be, pride may be the wrong word, because she achieved this on her own. But to be able to work with people like Oliyinka around the world has to make you feel pretty good. It's incomprehensible to me, really, that I got to a place where I have this kind of opportunity. Uh, Starting Astronomers Without Borders seemed like a good idea, but it's really always been the people in the community that that made things really happen. Only Inca is an inspiration, really. I'm the lazy one. I get to just talk to people, and they go out and do all the work. I'm kind of like the Huck Finn of astronomy. Getting I, th- I think I've called you Johnny Astro Seed or something like that in the past. Well, you know, but it takes it it takes a village. It really does, and it just happens to be a place where that village doesn't have any borders. Um, sitting here, looking right now at a portrait of Carl Sagan, one of the founders of the Planetary Society who was one of the first people to really popularize the idea that we're, we're all in this together. We're on this yeah. little pale blue dot, as he called it, from the Voyager picture. And when we look out into the sky and we see the same things and we have the same sense of wonder, the same sense of awe, and the same sense of belonging to something much bigger, and we can bring that feeling to Earth and realize that we're all crew members on Spaceship Earth, as Buckminster Fuller called it, and that we really have so much more in common than all these little details that separate us. One people, one sky, right? Exactly. 
Olienko, have you had any impression that he has ever been lazy in his life? No way. Like, like Mike, it is is a great support for for it. You know, when when Mike tells the story, I'm like, okay, maybe. But I remember meeting Mike in 2013, and he said, okay, you could do that. I said, okay, fine. And then I got back to Nigeria, and then I started AWB Nigeria. But every step of the way, Mike was there, you know, supporting 110%, you know, like guiding us on, on what we need we needed to do at the time and encouraging every step I took. And, and I think that really made me want to do more because each time we had a, a program, then we did something, my would be like, wow, this is amazing. I would be like, okay. It's really amazing to, to have, you know, Mike all through the way, you know, helping all along and being the inspiration that, that, that really got us going. I think it's, it's great. I hope that you will continue to inspire each other and, and many other people, uh, not just in Nigeria, but around the world. Uh, we need more of you. Thank you both very much. And uh, enjoy. Have a good, safe trip home and uh, a wonderful time when you return to Nigeria. Thank you very much. And Mike, will talk again. Oh, I hope so. Time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts, who um, has his hand in a lot of things going on at the Society, including a brand new campaign to uh, support the search for not just one, not just two, not three Earths, (laughs) but a hundred Earths. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, we're uh, working with uh, Deborah Fisher, exoplanet hunter extraordinaire and her team including uh, she's at yale and joe llama at well you talked to them last week at yep. uh, uh, at lowell observatory and we are doing a campaign to help support the replacement of a super high-tech uh, fiber optic component basically a photonic crystal fiber so you can get uh, more details on this cool effort to try to find 100 Earth-like planets or at least Earth-sized planets around other nearby stars. Uh, you can go to planetary.org slash 100 Earths, the numeral 100 followed by Earths, and, uh, and learn more. If you are listening to this on the radio and you uh, missed the, I'm not sure if I left it in there or not, because of course the radio version of the show is generally shorter, uh, but it's in the podcast version. If you want to hear more about uh, the 100 Earths Project from Deborah and Joe, because as Bruce said, uh, they were on just last week. What's up in the night sky? How many Earths have you found? (laughs) One. You can look down at any given time and you will find one Earth and only 99 to go. Still in the habitable zone, too, at least for the time being. <laughs> it is. It is. We, we got a bunch of other planets as I, I keep. I'm kind of repetitive, but, you know, that's the way the sky works. Uh, in the evening sky, Venus just looking stunning over there in the west in the early evening, super bright star-like object. And in the morning sky, we got a lineup of planets with uh, that are going to be shifting positions in the coming weeks. Right now, we've got uh, Mars looking reddish in the highest right position. This is over to the east in the pre-dawn. And then bright Jupiter to its lower left and yellowish Saturn to its lower left. And then on March 18th, we'll have the crescent moon hanging out and it'll be glorious. And then the planets will all 
dance over the next coming weeks. <laughs> so check that out if you're a pre-dawn kind of person. Look out, look over in the east. You know, I just remember tomorrow I have to get up before dawn to uh, interview Andruian, who, with if all goes well, will be my guest talking about the new season of Cosmos uh, that premieres on the 9th. Uh, March 9th. So maybe I'll duck outside first. Hopefully I won't lock myself out <laughs> prior to having to interview her on the phone. You should just put a key in your pajamas just in case. I don't think they have pockets. <laughs> Duct tape it to your forehead. <laughs> Good idea. That never fails. And on, and on that brilliant note, let's move on to this week in space history. <laughs> It was uh, 2006 that Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter went into orbit around Mars, and it's still working with its amazing uh, high-resolution camera and uh, other science instruments. 2015, Ceres Dawn went into orbit around Ceres in 2015. That's great. And only after it had orbited Vesta and then departed, becoming the first spacecraft to order uh, orbit two objects in our solar system. Uh, Random uh, map fact. <laughs> I can't help it. It's just, I'm so thrilled by that mission. No, it's amazing. We'll also, I'm sure, uh, warm the heart of our regular listener, Mark Raymond, who was uh, <laughs> uh, had two jobs uh, leading that mission. One for Vesta, one for Ceres. No, not really. <laughs> no. Uh, all right, we move on to... Random space fact. Oh my goodness, you really need an app. I do. At its average distance, you could fit more than 6,000 Earths side by side between Earth and Mars. Is that all? <laughs> yeah. It's Mars, so it varies considerably, but that's uh, an, an average distance. But yeah, only a few more than 6,000 Earths side by side. Now, we're hoping that Deborah and Joe find a hundred of those that we can stick side by side, but we're, <laughs> we're going to have a more advanced campaign in the future to find the other 5,900. All right. We already got one. <laughs> All right. On to the trivia contest. We asked you what Ranger mission imaged Mare Tranquilidades, the sea of tranquility before slamming into the surface as intended. How'd we do Matt? It was a huge response. Uh, not a lot of uh, fun comments, but a few, a few. We always get a good number. And I will share some of those right after you tell us the answer. Ranger 8. Ranger 8, the uh, second successful Ranger that uh, returned images of Mare Tranquilidades. Tell us amusing things. Well, first I'll tell you that our winner, first time winner, Fernando Nagal in Lisbon, Portugal. Another one from uh, across the pond. He said, sure, it was Ranger 8. He added, listening to the Planetary Radio podcast is always time well spent, informative, and entertaining. Thank you, and keep it up. Ad Astra. Oh, that's nice. Thank you, Fernando. And uh, thank you to all of you who add notes like that. There, there are so many that you know we don't mention on the air because we're so not conceited. We, we really do appreciate it. And I do try to answer almost all of them uh, in uh, email. Fernando has won a copy of that great book by Paul Davies that we talked about just two weeks ago, The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. And we will throw in a Planetary Society rubber asteroid. 
And now I can read you some of the fun stuff. Well, (laughs) Robert Laporta in Connecticut. And this goes with the next one. The last picture was taken 0.09 seconds, nine hundredths of a second before impact. (laughs) And so how, how far above the moon was that? Well, if he's right, Vladimir Bogdanov in British Columbia said that was at an altitude of one and a half meters. <laughs> Seems unlikely they would have been able to return the picture. But, I'm guessing maybe. that, yeah, I'm guessing maybe it was taken a fraction before that. And then maybe, I don't know how long it took Ranger to transmit its pictures. You know, we were all so new at this. Uh, well, we'll look uh, into this. Solomon Jones in uh, Wisconsin, he said, so cool that we make so much NASA data free and accessible to all. Unbelievable that these amazing Ranger 8 images are from an unmanned vehicle in 1965. That is a long time ago. Yeah, it was impressive. Pavel Kamesha in Minsk, Belarus. He said six out of the nine Ranger missions failed, so the odds of guessing the right answer were one in three. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you knew the three that succeeded. Finally, our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. NASA sent Rangers to check out the moon, but accidents commonly struck. The first six they sent all had big accidents, the shoot and hope bad kind of luck. But finally, seven would make it to heaven, and Ranger 8 struck up the band, by filming detritus in Tranquilitatis, it showed where Apollo might land. <laughs> Impressive rhyming. Thank you again, Dave. We're ready for another one of these. All right. I, it's time again. I, I, I can't wait any longer. It's time for Where in the Solar System? <sighs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant where in the, you're so pleased with yourself i love it <laughs> love where it, where in the solar system is there a feature named bilbo <laughs> bilbo b-i-l-b-o is in bilbo baggins but just bilbo where in the solar system is there a feature named bilbo i'm just having fun saying bilbo i'm sorry go to planetary.org slash radio contest is there also one named frodo and Sam? No, I don't. I I don't know why. I, well, I didn't actually search for Sam. There may be a Sam. It's probably not a Samwise. I'll look. Extra points if you tell us where Samwise and Frodo currently reside somewhere around the solar system. You have until the eleventh. That'd be March eleven at eight a.m. Pacific time to uh, get us the answer this time. And uh, we'll send you a Planetary Society rubber asteroid and a Planetary Radio t-shirt from uh, chopshopstore.com. That's where the Planetary Society store is. And you can check out all our cool stuff. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about if you were to go there and back again, where would you like to go there and back again? Thank you and good night. Second star on the right, straight on toward morning. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us here in Neverland every week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its wide eyed members throughout the world. Join us as we look up and beyond by visiting planetary.org/slash membership. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer, Josh Doyle composed our theme which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.